You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. So just last week, WHO declared coronavirus a pandemic. And since then, daily we have witnessed drastic measures by world governments in response. We are also witnessing intense shock to the global capital markets with spillover effect on the main streets. At Toronto Centre, we are no stranger to crisis preparedness. So we are pleased to launch our pandemics and financial stability webcast series. And in this uh, first episode, uh, we sit down with two prominent experts to cover the public health, public policy, as well as the financial supervisory dimensions of this challenge. We circulated their bios of their impressive career to you in advance, so I won't read them. And they're also posted on our website. But I should emphasize that Dr. David Nabarro has been appointed as special envoy of the WHO Director General on COVID-19 for Europe and North America. David has worked in over 100 and, uh, sorry, 50 countries and has held previous leadership roles in the UN on projects including disease outbreaks and health issues. And Carl Hiralal is the chair of Toronto Centre's Insurance and Pensions Advisory Board and a seasoned former senior supervisor at Canada's OSFI, Trinidad Tobago, and frequent contributor to the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. I would like to thank our core steady sponsors, Global Affairs Canada, Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, and the International Monetary Fund, without whom we could not achieve our global mission. Before I start, I know that many of our viewers have questions for these two experts. You probably see something beneath the screen. Please type your questions in, and we have budgeted some time to answer as many of them as time allows. Now, uh, we're very privileged to have uh, uh, Dr. Navarro with us. He's actually in the trenches now, and any minute that we're taking away from him is taken away from the global efforts that he and his colleagues at WHO are spending here. So without any further ado, I'm just gonna talk, talk to you, Dr. Navarro, first. After a slow start, it appears that many world governments are now mobilized and have declared states of emergency. But it is not clear whether these are coordinated efforts or just one government matching another's latest announcement and response. So my question to you is, is there a need for more global public health coordination? And is relief in sight? Thank you very much indeed. And hello, everybody. Um, just in case you wondered, I'm not sitting on the beach with a beautiful sun uh, set behind me, but just to brighten my day up, I've changed my background uh, because otherwise you would see my uh, sitting room because like everybody working for the international organizations here in the border between France and Switzerland, I'm at home. And I'm at home because this area is now in a shutdown phase, and it's in a shutdown phase because of the outbreak. 
Now, the question that Babak asked me was about coordination. So let me just say a couple of quick things. Firstly, this uh, epidemic that's turned into a pandemic is really a series of outbreaks, and those outbreaks are advancing at an incredibly rapid pace, exponentially, doubling in scale every two or three days. Now, when you've got something that's really that dramatic in terms of advancement, it's super hard for authorities to keep pace with it, especially once it expands and has been multiplying in the community for a number of weeks. And so the first point to say is that we've really learned from Southeast Asian countries that very rapid action at the beginning is absolutely key. And we're encouraging everybody concerned to get into that mindset, the gradual imposition of actions, one country after another kind of domino effect is not really the right thing to do. It's being really robust and rigorous from the start. Then the pain and difficulty may be reduced because if you keep outbreaks contained and suppressed, then you reduce the consequences. Now, the World Health Organization, second point, is doing its best to coordinate everybody around a common strategy. But the World Health Organization is only an advisory body. It cannot compel governments to do things. And governments are acting as best they think they can in the economic and societal context. So to my third point, I am absolutely certain that if we're going to lessen the pain and speed the rate at which societies get on top of this series of outbreaks in the way that South Korea, China, and Singapore have done, we need much, much better coordination, but coordination that brings everybody up to the pace of the fastest rather than coordination that slows everybody to the lowest common denominator. And with that, I hand you back to Babak. Thank you for that. This morning, as I was coming to work, I just noticed that there were like 451 deaths in uh, Italy, which actually surpasses the number of confirmed cases in Canada. It was a record for them. So your comments are extremely timely. And Carl, uh, Dr. Navarro just gave us a very sobering assessment and lots to think about. You are no stranger to financial crises. I'm sure you've had to deal with some of them in your own career. What's different this time? Well, thank you for that question and good morning, good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> Let me preface my comments by saying that this crisis has significantly upended the manner in which financial institutions operate on a day-to-day -day basis. More importantly, there is great uncertainty over when this will end and what will be the economic fallout. Overarching all of this is the fact or the evidence that this is a pervasive humanitarian tragedy, as Dr. Nabarro just also indicated. So it's different. So let me indicate the impact on financial institutions. Financial institutions, as we all know, are no strangers to dealing with crises, 
such as natural and man-made disasters. In general, their track record is pretty good. But past disasters were usually localized and occurred over a discrete period of time. This crisis, this time around, we have a crisis which is multidimensional. It is global. It is unprecedented in terms of impact and reach in the real economy. And the problem is exacerbated by extreme volatility. Let me briefly make two more points. The volume of employees working from home today is unprecedented. Some of the banks, the major banks in Canada, they have up to 50,000 employees working at home. This is unprecedented. This arrangement, however, is fraught with challenges, is fraught with challenges such as maintaining client confidentiality, preventing cyber risk, preventing fraud, and even potential market conduct abuses. Operational risk, therefore, is high. Reputation risk could therefore become an issue for financial institutions under these kinds of operating, in this operating environment. Secondly, financial stability requires the financial system to function in good times and bad times. This goal could be elusive this time around as the recovery of the economy may be longer than it has been in the past. We all know that supply chains are disrupted. International suppliers are unknown and probably unreliable at this point in time. If manufacturing companies are unable to operate, employees will be impacted financially and the banks through loans and mortgage payments will be impacted. This is the typical cascading effect that we have in these circumstances. All of this, however, is occurring at a time when oil prices are declining, which could result in decreased fiscal capacity of many countries to facilitate a recovery. So to summarize this, why it's different, at the risk of sounding alarmist, and I'm a regulator, and regulators, as you all know, are paid to worry, this is a risk officer's nightmare as business continuity plans of some financial institutions most likely did not contemplate the magnitude of this challenge, although there are many that are up to the challenge. There are no precedents to fall back on, and financial institutions will find it difficult to develop sustainable responses. By extension, regulators could also be challenged enormously as they grapple with developing action plans and strategies for responding. That is my comments on this point. Thank you. Another sobering one. I feel like I didn't need any coffee this morning. This is just like the two of you are keeping me awake. And for those who are in the evening hours, I hope you're not being put to a kind of a nightmare for night, but this is very interesting. Thank you. David, turning back to you, um, uh, 
our preoccupation, as I said, was that it was a lot of uh, poverty reduction, developing countries, and generally speaking, other issues. Could you uh, give a reflection on this? Talking about financial stress, uh, what Carl is talking about, is it reasonable to assume that pandemics hit the most vulnerable communities harshest? If so, what more could be done at the global level to mitigate the risks and increase awareness? Thank you very much, Babak. There are some paradoxes here. First of all, uh, the part of the world that's, or parts of the world that are being most severely hit right now are the parts of the world that are seen to be wealthier. Europe, and in a short period of time, uh, North America. And isn't that odd? You know, normally we imagine that these kinds of infectious diseases are going to really uh, create havoc in the poorer countries of the world. But I'm afraid that bad news does actually go on. It's not, I can't come now to, to you all with messages of hope and light at the end of the tunnel right now, because having started in China and actually being eventually, after the most extraordinary effort by the Chinese people and government, having started in China and then been brought under containment and suppressed, it's now come to Europe where it's actually affecting some quite wealthy regions, particularly in northern Italy and around Madrid in Spain, northern and central France. And then it'll come, I'm afraid, to other countries in Europe. And then it'll be in the United States. It's there already, but it'll grow. But what really concerns me and my colleagues in the World Health Organization is that this is going to go into Africa. It's already, we had reports today of where it is in Africa right now. And it's going to go into other markets in Asia, the Middle East and Latin America. Now at the moment, our advice is really the same for these places which are just about to get it. And that is, please act rapidly, rigorously, robustly, because any delay in a strong early response greatly adds to the magnitude of the response needed later and the pain associated with that later response. When you're dealing with an early stage of an outbreak, as is happening in the African countries I mentioned that are just reporting it, you can manage by swarming round the people who are infected and who are contacts and in a dignified way, isolating them and helping them not to infect others. But if you leave it for a week or two with half-hearted measures, then you get these explosive outbreaks and then you have to impose really strong measures, including physical distancing of the whole population and sometimes you have to restrict movements, like what we've got here in France at the moment, a lockdown. Who suffers the most when these are introduced? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's the people who don't have savings, who don't have regular employment, 
and who've got challenging domestic circumstances, possibly debt. For them, it's a question of survival. And we've already seen in some parts of Africa that food prices are going up, partly because people are stockpiling, but partly because of market gouging. And so that's going to add to the distress of poor people. So what we're currently preparing everybody for is a really major increase in levels of impoverishment and all that goes with that. And we are saying anything you can do to prioritize the health functions to respond quickly will have two important impacts. One, you'll reduce the disease and reduce the necessary for necessity for lockdowns. Two, you will increase public confidence which in turn may reduce the amount of withdrawal of investment that's leading to the lowering of equities in stock exchanges. Either way, public health has to come number one, otherwise the poverty impacts will be far, far too great. And as far as I'm concerned, threaten all the gains that have been made in recent years through development efforts. Thank you. I think one uh, one observation I have from your comment is, and it was very good that you talked about the dilemma, the, the paradox, uh, we are all in it together, rich, poor, uh, old, young. I'm, in fact, um, I'm learning now that uh, the whole thing about people over 65 being vulnerable is not necessarily ironclad. Like a lot of uh, cases are beginning to develop for people under 60 and others who are having serious problems. And even, yeah. So Carl, analysis of hospital data from Italy, and from South Korea are showing very clearly that there are younger patients needing intensive care. Sorry, I cut across you. I, I know you wanted to move to Carl. It's okay, but the point being that we're all being urged to do social isolation, but in fact, if you think about it from a higher level, this is bringing us all together as a species, right? It's interesting. This pandemic, Carl, is transcending national boundaries and at an alarming rate with enormous economic impact. Consumers and industry are affected significantly. Dr. Nabarro talked touched a little bit on that. Given that financial institutions are in the business of risk, one would expect that they should have in place an effective business continuity plan and risk management, even for the times of pandemic, to address impacts. So with this in mind, what should regulators do and how do they get comfort that financial institutions have taken appropriate steps to mitigate their risks during this difficult time. Okay, thank you. First of all, one of the tenets of risk-based supervision is the capability of regulators to intervene in a timely basis. In normal times, regulators must be able to continually assess the stability of the financial system. This is no different during a crisis, except that it is significantly more challenging. The type of information, the quality of the information, and the speed with which that information is transferred to the regulator is crucial. So what do we do? Regulators, therefore, need to establish effective lines of communication with key people, persons, 
at their individual financial institutions. Discussions need to occur frequently as required, and this could mean weekly or even daily, depending on the financial institution. Again, this is the regulator acquiring knowledge and intelligence as to how well the financial institutions are deploying their BCP and how well they're coping and how effective it is. The information needed by regulators from the FI includes, and I will list a number of them. First and foremost, the regulators need to understand the degree to which boards of directors of their supervised companies are actively engaged throughout this entire process and supporting management. Just as an aside, I sit on a regulatory board in the Caribbean, and I have been in contact frequently with management of that regulatory board to determine how they are coping. And this is more than once, uh, um, once a week. So that involvement of the board is important. Secondly, the effectiveness of financial institutions, BCP, and whether they're continually revising it to deal with rapidly changing circumstances is important to the regulator. By the way, this also applies to regulators. They must demonstrate that they're also able to operate during this crisis. In other words, is their BCP working? The optics here is important for us as regulators. In addition to that, regulators need to know the degree to which the employees of the financial institutions are protected because financial institutions need to continue to provide services, albeit reduced, uh, to their customers. Confirmation is needed by the regulators that critical processes have been identified and are supported. These are the processes, for example, that in the case of insurance companies and, and banks that have pension plans, that annuity payments and pension plans will continue to be made during this crisis situation because pension payments are going to the vulnerable elements of our society, older people who need the pension funds in order to buy food and medication. So those are the kinds of critical processes I'm referring to. But if we look at, at this in an overall or a holistic manner, we need to ensure, or the regulators need to ensure that the, reg, that the financial institutions have an effective decision-making process in place. For example, are there designated persons who are empowered to make decisions without any undue bureaucratic burden? Is there a matrix system at the financial institution involving players from different departments to discuss problems holistically? Are the key players in financial institutions taking calculated risk in their decision-making processes, considering that time is of the essence and all relevant information may not be available? Have they financial institutions communicated to their customers on the revised mode of operation? Have the financial institutions identified forbearances 
and have communicated them to their customers. Forbearances such as delay, waiving of penalties for delay of payments, late payments, um, waiving ATM fees and those kinds of things. And my last point that I would want to raise is that are there any special consideration given to SMEs, given that in normal times, new jobs are created by SMEs? I think those are the comments that I would like to indicate here. But I, I am really um, uh, attracted to a comment that Dr. Nabarro just made where he said, in these times, increased food prices could affect the poor more than anybody else. And that to me is a real life situation that you have to deal with. So those are my comments on that point. Thank you. That was very uh, succinct way of summarizing, cataloging the key uh, concerns there. Dr. Nero, returning back to you, uh, you know, you published six COVID-19 narratives since late February. That's February 2020. That's how fast this thing is happening to address this pandemic. I understand you're probably working on the seventh one. Could you please give us a bird's eye view of the early lessons that are relevant for our conversation today? And also yesterday when you and I were talking, you were talking about whether this could be a V or U type of a recovery. Could you comment on all of that just to, for our audience a little bit, please? Thank you very much indeed. Let me start from places where I feel safest, the things that I know most about, public health and the management of disease outbreaks. So I started to get involved at the request of the WHO at the end of January. And I looked very carefully at the information coming through from China. And I could see how the Chinese authorities, after a period of uncertainty, and I think many of us read about that in the newspapers and on social media, there was then in early February, a real recognition that this was so serious that the whole apparatus of the Chinese state had to be mobilized to support Chinese communities for collective action, to identify people with disease and isolate them, to find their contacts and to quarantine them, to set up good quality health services and make sure all the doctors and nurses were protected, to do the best possible health care, and at the same time, to ensure that the people who were being looked after were treated with dignity. And they managed, but they did it also by isolating Wuhan from the rest of China, isolating Hubei province from the rest of China, and then making sure that everybody else in every other province was on the alert to deal with cases that were imported from Hubei and Wuhan and to basically suppress whatever started. A really important learning from this was that actually public health matters. And then having good quality capacity at the community level matters. And that being closely with the people and respecting them matters. And doing it all super fast and repurposing government to make it happen matters. Because although the economic medicine feels very bitter when you do it like that, I think that the calculation by the Chinese authorities, which was picked up by our team from the World Health Organization, was better to take the bitter medicine in one gulp at the beginning than to take it in dribs and drabs over a longer period. 
And yes, I, have, I believe that we've seen from the Chinese experience that there is a way to deal with this and there is a way that there's some hope to come out of the pandemic and out of COVID outbreaks with a relatively short but significant damage to the economy. I think, yes, the Chinese economy has taken a huge hit and it may continue to take a hit because we should not assume that there won't be returns of COVID to China. We're already seeing some evidence that that's happening. So you take the big hit, you expect some subsequent economic damage, but at least that means then that now I get into the places I don't know anything about, Babe. You, you basically, if you do it that way, your economic impact is a down and then anticipated after a period and up again. It's probably a U-shape and it will take some time. And it's caused, as I say, big distress to lots of Chinese. And when I say lots, I mean millions. But just suppose the Chinese government had not done that. Just suppose that they'd taken halfway measures. They'd said, well, we're not quite sure how serious this is. We'll, perhaps we'll introduce some social distancing. We'll tell some people to go into quarantine, but we won't enforce it. We'll slightly ramp up health services, but we'll do the best we can. And we won't be able to empty all our hospitals or build new hospitals quickly. So we'll manage the best we can with what we've got. Then it would be a different story. The outbreak would still be roaring in China really strongly. And instead of having an economic impact, which is a U, you might have an economic impact which feels a bit more like an L, with very slow recovery and perhaps even some permanent damage to some sectors, especially if the finance side has not got right. And that is the specter that some of the business leaders that I'm meeting are talking to me about now. They're saying, you know, if we can't follow the examples of the countries that have been successful, and if we let this thing go on for many months, the rest of this year, perhaps into next year, and it goes on like that, not just in some geographies, but in most of European, North American, and perhaps some other regions, then there is a real possibility of sustained damage to economies, sustained damage to employment prospects, sustained damage to the social fabric. And the reason why I'm saying all this to you is that sometimes political leaders listen more to people in the finance sector. And if you can say to those who are making decisions, hey, these public health people, you know, they might be right that actually if we treat this thing seriously from the beginning and get on top of it quickly, the economic hit might be less. Don't you think you should listen to them? I hope you'll do that. Because last point, there's no stage where you give up on this thing. Even when you've got an explosive outbreak, like colleagues of mine are dealing with in northern Italy, not far from where I am now, they've learned that if you can maintain the effort and if you can keep mobilizing society, even though your hospitals 
are overloaded and your doctors and nurses are totally exhausted and feeling terribly bad about the choices they have to make, you can push it back. So at no point should we give up, but the quicker we can get world leaders to come together and deal with this as a collective force, as a global problem, whether it's in the G7 or the G20 or in the United Nations, but the leaders have to want to do it. You can't push them to do it, but the quicker that happens, the better it will be for your industry and the better it will be for people everywhere. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think uh, you, should, you can take comfort that the audience you're talking to, supervisors, regulators, uh, we are a science-based community. We, we're not like some world leaders that call things hoax or things of that nature. And the, the other thing to keep in mind for you is that uh, I've never seen a press release that praises a financial sector supervisor or regulator. They never get that praise. But there's all kinds of fingers of blame at them when something goes wrong. So this audience is very seized. Now, Carl, with your permission, uh, I just looked at our questions from the audience. We have about 20 questions from the audience. They're all excellent. Hard for me to pick. So I'm going to directly go to them. And I want to put the first question to you. While most supervisors and regulatory authorities have likely invoked their crisis and contingency plans, for those agencies that do not have such plans as of yet, what advice do you want to give the supervisors now? So concisely, if you could please give us your top-of-mind ideas on that? First of all, um, financial institutions uh, which do not have a BCP plan um, is an issue and uh, should not um, have allowed to happen. Nevertheless, in this situation, perhaps all is not lost because this crisis is so different, so unprecedented that even BCP plans, which were put in place ahead of this crisis, are most likely being drastically revised and drastically changed at the moment. I think the, the basic uh, answer to this is the BCP plans need to develop and you need to be focused. In other words, focus and finish should be the modus operandi here. They need to identify the critical processes within the company. Those processes need to be maintained and they need to identify the people who would be required to maintain those processes. They need to ensure that their employees are well protected. And in addition to that, their regulators need to be in constant uh, communication with these financial institutions to understand the degree to which they are under stress. The financial institutions need to mobilize right now and they need to get their boards involved. Dr. Navarro, this questioner actually named you, so I'm going to go right to you. Um, it is, speaks to a concern all of us have because most of our lives seem to be suspended now, right? We have suspended all of our training programs that are physical and we have to look at other ways of delivering. We're not the only one in that uh, state either. So we have seen many actions taken by European and other Western authorities, including border shutdown and emergency state declaration. But even in, this in these conditions, the disease continues its exponential growth. Do you think that it should pass a certain amount of time for the outbreak to consume its potential or the measures were taken later that it would be required? If eventually there should pass a certain amount of time for the disease to slow down, 
how much would be your estimate? So I guess this is about a function of time and pressure. And as a scientist who sees with this, what's your general guidance or assurance observation or whatever you can provide us, please? Thank you very much indeed, Babak. Colleagues, this is a new reality. We're dealing with an unseen enemy and we have never faced this enemy before. Only three months has this virus been around. As the new reality hits us all, there are many, many struggles that we each have. Struggles that are so complex that we are often in a state of paradox. We think we've got the answer in our heads one hour, and then an hour later we're questioning it. And so each one of us is having iterations. And I was very interested in a comment that Carl just said about the importance of having space to discuss these issues with our colleagues, with our families, in our communities, because they're not simple. And I have to tell you that despite the fact that I do public health, despite the fact that I've got access to all the data that I believe are available in the published and non-published domains, I can't tell you how long this is going to last for. I can tell you, and I will go on saying it, that the pain for individuals and societies, for economies and for nations, is greatly reduced by early action, is greatly reduced by concerted, rigorous and robust action, and that just saying we give up, that will be very bad news. We have to keep on a front foot, and some people say, I don't like using this language, on a battle footing. So what might determine when this will come down? One, most obviously, it's up to us. And China, Singapore, South Korea have shown that it can be done and are showing that it can be done. And I believe they'll be able to hold it. They will struggle. They will periodically have little blips when there are lots of cases and perhaps, unfortunately, some deaths. But at least they know what to do. And the speed at which the rest of the world can organize to get on top of it will determine when it comes down. A lockdown does not necessarily suppress the disease. It reduces it, but you have to include the public health measures of case finding, isolation, contact tracing, and then quarantining as well. You've got to keep both sides going. Otherwise, all that happens is you do the lockdown and the, the numbers come down, you take off the lockdown, and then suddenly it will rush back again. So you really have to combine the lockdown, which kind of buys you time, with the strengthening of public health measures. And if we do that, then let's just look at China. All the problems were really happening in January, and we're now in March. So that's the space of three months. And so if we get it properly organized, we can get these curves down, as we call it, or the epidemic curves, that's our language, within three months. And, and so there is light at the tunnel. If we don't, then it's like that thing where we're in a tunnel and we can't see the light at the end. It could take a very long time. We don't know whether there are lots of people getting the disease without symptoms, creating what we call herd immunity, 
If there are, that'll be wonderful because then the numbers of people to infect will drop and then the thing will reduce naturally like happens with influenza. We don't know whether perhaps as the weather gets hot in the northern summer, that perhaps the transmission will reduce and the curve will come down. We just don't know. So that's why we keep going on about following the Southeast Asian example. And you might get your curves coming down within three months, rather than hoping that we can get some miracle like herd immunity or like heat, or perhaps the other miracle, which is the vaccine, because all my friends tell me, and these are the researchers, that's about a year away. It was a long answer. I know you said to be short, but I wanted, there was such a lot in that one. I wanted to be able to give you my logic straight out of my head. No, you get an A plus for uh, packing a lot of information in a uh, small space of time. So thank you very much. I have a comment here from one of the viewers, which I think is very appropriate to read. It says, it was stated that WHO is just advisory body and cannot tell government what to do. Do you think that this epidemic is not just the responsibility of governments, but for the community as a whole? We as individuals have social responsibility if we are going to control this virus. So I think this echoes so much what you're saying. But well, one observation I'd like to put on the table is it's just too darn bad that this epidemic happened right after the various attempts by some to dismantle the global trade and global architecture that's happening because the next question talks about coordination of response, global response. I'll just about a few questions are touching on that. Where is that coordinated global response? And I'd like to preface that by saying WHO, in my view, humble view, really kicked ass. I mean, they were the ones who were out there, they blew the whistle. Uh, the declaration of pandemic was just last week and a lot of world governments woke up. But absent WHO, do you and Carl see a major global coordination in the, in the same way that we saw with the global financial crisis or some of the other things? Maybe there are, and I don't want to say that there are not, but do you actually see that level of robust uh, energy for people coming together, forming groups to talk about cross-boundary uh, issues? So I guess can, any of you can take that. Carl, maybe you want to leave with that and then we go back. Sure. Um, I think to a certain extent, financial regulators globally have come together through all, through their international organizations, such as the BIS, the IAIS, IOSCO, and IOPS. So this whole issue, this dialogue of cooperation um, has started and it's getting better every day. It, it got started in a very significant way after the last financial crisis of 2008. So I believe the dialogue is there, the communication is there, and it's important that um, it be effectively handled because many of the financial institutions today operate globally, particularly in smaller, where you have regions of the world, where you have the individual jurisdictions are so small that it's almost impossible for any one financial institution to operate in a manner where it gains critical mass. And therefore you have other financial institutions uh, or what I would say foreign financial institutions operating in those jurisdictions. And therefore, once you have that kind of extension, 
it's imperative or incumbent upon regulators to talk to each other. I believe the regulatory uh, bodies are ready for this in terms of cooperation. Dr. Navarro? Yeah, so I build on what Carl said. Gosh, Carl, I could listen to you all day. It's just so beautiful, your wisdom and the way you express it. You see, in, um, I worked for 17 years in different roles in the United Nations, and I learned that you have to have leaders of individual nations who are prepared to take the extra effort to invest in coordination if you're going to be able to deal adequately with these huge issues that cross national boundaries. I mean, the, the, one of the best known areas that I was involved in is climate change. And there was a period around 2015 when together with the Secretary General of the United Nations, I was working very, very hard to make certain that leaders who realized the importance of working together were able to contribute to collective action on this difficult issue. And that led to the agreement that took place in Paris called COP21, which was a milestone agreement on climate action. But it wasn't just leaders of governments, it was also leaders of businesses who were super important, leaders of civil society, leaders in professions, basically, it's leaders everywhere that we need to, basic, to just say, we believe that working together is better than working separately. And of course, for those of us who try to work internationally, it's, it's obvious, but it's not always obvious when you're within an individual country. When the financial crisis happened, you know, there were lots of questions about whether the International Monetary Fund was fit for purpose. And I remember so well the work that was done then with some leaders who are not in uh, leadership positions now, but they were very much then, taking a huge amount of effort and time to think about how to rebuild the International Monetary Fund so it was better able to pick up the signs of an impending crisis early and then to respond with the kind of stabilizing measures that are needed. Now, if leaders actually deliberately seek to unwind, dismantle global coordination processes, no matter how hard those of us who work inside the international system try, we get stuck. And so, if there's one thing I'd like to say to you all, it is please use whatever powers you have to remind those who are in senior positions that there is no substitute for investing in coordination between national governments in order that we create the capacity for collectively dealing with existential crises that go beyond national borders. That's all I really got to say on that. That's fantastic. Uh, Carl, uh, I want to give you a daunting challenge. Uh, we need to wrap up very quickly because if we don't wrap up on time, people won't join our webinar next time. I have a very complex question. And uh, the question is, you, Carl, you commented that operational risk is extremely high. Agreed. The bad actors intend on targeting the financial services sector by conducting cyber crimes, financial crimes, 
are and will seize upon this massive disruption. So apocalyptic scenario. Has this scenario resulted in known greater levels of global cooperation that you can comment upon? Well, well first of all, cyber risk is, um, has emerged over the last few years as a major risk facing financial institutions. And international regulatory organizations, almost all of them are seized of the seriousness of this issue. And there is a fair amount of training going on on the technology side for regulators and which I have to say regulators are attending these things. But I believe that the financial institution themselves have taken this serious. And so what we have here is a pairing where the regulators themselves are getting educated on how to deal with cyber risk, how to deal with technology risk. And, um, and because of that, they are better equipped to analyze and assess the efficiency of which financial institutions themselves are protecting their systems against cyber risk. So I believe this is, this is positive. It's a work in progress, but I believe both parties are working and I think, um, it's difficult because the, the criminals always seem to be one step ahead of you. And therefore, you need to keep up. I don't think you will eliminate it, but you can, you can make their lives difficult. That's excellent. So we still have a few more questions left, which we will not be able to get to, because I'm very anxious to send Dr. Navarro back to work. I mean, he, as I said, he's in the trenches, and that's no joke. But uh, uh, a word of encouragement to our viewers, we would love you to continue with the other uh, uh, webinars in this series. In fact, we have scheduled one for Tuesday, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, so Toronto, New York time, and one on Thursday, and you will be getting the notice about these. Initially, a couple of days ago, we had only about 20 people, and as of uh, last night, 300 people had uh, signed up for this webinar. I think this morning was a little bit more the number, so we're very encouraged. And a tremendous thank you to both our speakers. You exceeded all our expectations. I found this extremely informative, less dramatic than what we see on CNN and others, but just really to the point. So thank you very much for giving us the honest truth as it was, as you see it, as you're experiencing it. And we will try to do something with this series in terms of publication of papers, guidance notes, and other things that would be of help to financial sector supervisors and regulators. So thank you very much. and. Uh, Good luck to you, Dr. Navarro. Good luck to all of us. And let's learn the lessons of this social isolation to bring us together closer as a species. Good night, good morning, and bless all. Bye-bye. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you Stay in touch, please. For sure, please. I would welcome that. Yeah, Carl, you're great. I'm, I'm your fan. I love it. Thank you. So am I of you. <laughs> I'm well. Let's, let's keep going. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you handled this well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. -bye. bye.